Read God's Word with me, uh, verse 21 of chapter 4. And going on from there, he, Jesus, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. The progressive reformer, Jane Addams in 1911 wrote, The father is left out in the cold. He gets no recognition. It would be nice if they had a special day for him so that he would have some recognition. Sixty-one years later, Richard Nixon signed into law a bill that made Father's Day a national holiday. I'm glad they did. You know, we've come a long way, baby, from obscurity, you know, to, uh, to today, from, from the background to the foreground. As a matter of fact, ours is a society in search of a model father. In June of 1986, in Psychology Today, Rick Michael Kimmel wrote these words, America is suddenly having a love affair with fathers. Bathing perhaps in the afterglow of Kramer versus Kramer, we see fathers as safe and nurturing, exactly the emotionally expressive men that feminists suggested they should become. No longer the forgotten parent of earlier psychological studies, father now shares center stage with mother in a flood of books about the joys of co-parenting and joint custody, are the political correctness of becoming a house husband. In fact, mother had better be careful, or she'll be pushed to the wings. Ours is a society in search of father. The hottest television program today on prime television is the one you know, the Bill Cosby Show. As a matter of fact, Bill Cosby has written a bestseller. It's a hot book entitled Fatherhood. And I've read the reviews of that book, and the reviewers say that not even Bill Cosby, who people see as this ideal father, understands what is involved in fatherhood. On the one hand, he says that good fathers accept their children as they are, for better or worse, And in this book, he encourages parents to be understanding and loving and patient. But at the same time, there is this contradictory undercurrent that runs through the book in which he portrays children as selfish, expensive, contradictory liars and what he calls young adversaries, end quote. I suppose that not even Bill Cosby is a model father. Young Ronald Reagan Jr. helps us in our quest of an ideal father by saying that his own father is not an ideal father, a model father. He says he makes up for it, however, by being a kind and compassionate friend. Says Ronald Reagan Jr., my father's father was an alcoholic who was absent from the home most of the time So my father is not prepared to be a model father. He's not seen one, but he makes up for it by being a compassionate friend. Is there such a thing as a model father? 
Well, the answer to that is yes and no. There is no such thing as a perfect father, perfect human father. For some of you, it's easier to be a father than for some of us, and you do a better job of it. I'm not a perfect father. I'd like to be, and I try hard to be a good father, and I fail miserably, but I'm not going to quit trying, and I'm not going to give up. And I want to introduce to you this morning a model father. He's a Bible father, perhaps perhaps, uh, ignored and obscure. You may never have even thought of him. His name is Zebedee. He's the father of James and John. And I think if they had such an honor back in his day, at some time or another, he would have been voted the father of the year because I believe that he possesses the characteristics of a model father, and they are these. First of all, he raised two sons. Now, to have one son in Eastern culture was a real blessing. To have, a two, to have two sons was a double blessing. He raised two sons. He was really qualified to give us some kind of guidance with regard to fathers. You know, I've noticed that the people who are the most expert on some subject have no experience in it. I mean, the guy who can tell us how to be, how we should be as a husband is usually never been married, you know. And I've noticed that the people who tell us what's going on in the seminaries, all this heresy that's been taught in the seminary is usually somebody who's never been to seminary. And usually a person who is best, you know, who does the... Uh, the, the most talking about who should be, what we should be as fathers, has never been a father. But this man is qualified to have some kind of voice. He raised two sons. Now, I use that word deliberately, raised. He raised two sons. It's a Bible word. Paul says in Ephesians, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up, that is, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It means to nourish them in every aspect of life to full maturity. And there is a sense in which this exhortation of the Apostle Paul was not a new emphasis for the responsibility of a father to raise his children up under God is found predominantly through Old Testament Scripture. And Zebedee didn't fail. He taught his sons to fear Jehovah, the God of their ancestors. And he taught them to obey the law. And a part of that instruction was to teach his sons to anticipate the coming of the Messiah who would reign over God's kingdom. And so when Jesus appeared on the scene, these boys were looking for him. Now I know what you fathers are thinking. You're thinking whatever father thinks at some time or another. My responsibility is to see that my kids get to church. My responsibility is to take them to Sunday school and get them involved in choir and RAs. And that's my responsibility. Wrong. The responsibility to raise the child and to nourish him in the admonition of God is the responsibility that rests upon the home and primarily upon the father of that home. And not only is it my responsibility to bring my children up under the authority of God, it's my responsibility to live under that authority myself. And when I live under that authority, what I teach has a more existential relevance. For if I teach my children one mode of conduct and I live another mode of conduct, 
They see the hypocrisy of it all. It turns them off. They are not dummies. Zebedee was a model father because he raised his children up under God. And you can tell a lot about a father by looking at the children, at the sons, not all the time, but some of the time. And you can see in these boys something about their father. You can see their, his courage because James was the first martyr, the first disciple martyred. And you can see the faithfulness in Zebedee because John was the last at the, at the cross. And when Jesus turned the responsibility of his mother over to someone, he, he turned her not over to his brothers, but to John. And you can see that Zebedee was a tender and compassionate and loving, gentle father because John was that way. Jesus leaned on him that last night. And when you read his epistles, they write something like this. My little children... There was this tenderness in the fatherhood of Zebedee. There's a second characteristic about uh, Zebedee that was a model, model of a father. That is that he taught his children, his sons, how to work and to admire and to appreciate it. Now the text says that as Jesus walked by, he found James and John in the boat with their father, mending their nets. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about fishermen's nets or not, or you may have not read anything about it, but if you have, you know those, how many tiny strands there are that make up the mesh. And so if a father was sitting with his sons in a boat, mending nets, you know that he was teaching them the most tedious and mundane job of all. Now, it's a lot of fun to sit in the boat and cast out and get the big one. It's not much fun to spend half a day in the boat untangling the backlash of the reel. I mean, that's no fun. Now, it may be a lot of fun to cast the nets and catch the fish, but it's certainly no fun to sit in the boat and mend the nets. Tedious and mundane was the task. Why did he do it? Because he wanted his sons to know... He wanted his sons to learn the tedious and the mundane tasks of life. Uh, I'm always impressed with, I've um, shared this before, with what, uh, with, with what this guy can do. With what David can, he can do anything. He can fix these audio things and he can fix VCRs. If y'all get a VCR, just bring it up here, he can fix it. Uh, he, he'll be glad to get this work. Now, I'm kidding. He can fix televisions. He works on cars. And one day I asked him, David, where'd you learn all that stuff? And he said, my daddy taught me. And I know they have a marvelous relationship. Billy Rose tells a story about a father who lived way out in the country in the farm, on a farm. And about twice a year, he'd get his son and they'd gather up the vegetables and they'd put them in an old cart and tie it on the back of the ox and they'd head to town to the market. And the boy was, you know, excited and ready to go to work and, and ready to go to the market and make some money. And his father just liked to amble along, you know, take his time. As they passed by his uncle's house, a man wanted to stop and visit his brother. And the boy wanted to hurry up and get to market and get to favorite spot. He just couldn't wait till, you know, he'd spend an hour visiting with his brother and the boy's uncle. And they came to the fork in the road. The boy would want to go to the left. That was the quickest way to town. The father would take the way to the right, which was the best scenic route. 
As they camped one night on their way to town, the father and the boy were fixing their campfire, and the boy said to his father, you, think, you, you, you enjoy smelling flowers and looking at flowers than you, more than you do making money. And the father said, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. The next morning, the boy wanted to goad the ox on and hurry, and hurry the pace. The, the father held back and just ambled along as they made their way toward the city. Across the hills, they saw a flash go up in the sky. And the cloud turned, and the, and the sky turned dark in the area of the city. Must be a terrible storm in the city, said the father to the son. And the son said, if you'd have hurried, we'd have been there. Maybe now it's too late to get there in the storm. In the middle of the afternoon, they finally got to the hill. That They topped the hill and looked down upon the city, and they stood there looking for a long, long time. Then they turned the ox cart around and headed away from the city that had once been Hiroshima. I'm here to tell you, Father, that if you want to save your child from destruction, it would be a good thing for you to take some time to, and spend that time with your son teaching him the trivial and the mundane and the tedious and their nets and their hired servants. And Mark tells us that Zebedee had hired servants. I mean, he wasn't, you know, a pauper. His business was such that it was thriving enough for him to have servants. The question I have for you is, why didn't he get the servants to mend the nets? I mean, they could have done that. And the boys could, you know, lay up at the house until the servants got the nets mended, and then the boys could get with their father and they could go catch fish. You know the answer to that, because that father wanted to teach his... may have been the only time when he could have really spent some hours uninterrupted with his sons. He wanted to teach them how to get their hands dirty, how to get, them, get a hold of the smelly fish, how to do the hard and the tedious and the mundane. For a father can teach his sons, his children, how to work and how to appreciate it. Now I have some marvelous memories of my dad just like you do. He was just a common man, worked a dirt farm all of his life in Knox County, never had a whole lot. And one of the precious memories I have of my father today is that he taught me how to work. There's a third characteristic of a model father, and it's this. That he was there and heard his sons being called by the Lord. Now Matthew says that Jesus came by and called them. Now we don't know what he said to them. Perhaps he said the same thing that he said to Peter and Andrew, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But he was sitting in the boat and Jesus came by and said to James and John, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they got up and followed him, and Zebedee was there and heard it. Now we know from the, from the unanimous testimony of the other Gospels that this call of, to, uh, to James and John was not a call to salvation. It was a call to service. It succeeded a call to salvation. And from the testimony of the, of the other Gospel writers... It seems that 
James and John had already been exposed to Jesus. This was not the first encounter they'd had with Him. And it just may be that Peter and Andrew introduced them to Jesus. Or it may be that Zebedee, are listening, it may be that Zebedee, the father, had introduced James and John to Jesus. That's the way it ought to be. But the point is that when Jesus called them, He was close enough to them and to the Lord to hear the call. Now I have a question for you, parents. Are you close enough to the Lord to know what His will for your child might be? The the Bible says, train up a child in His way. Now what is His way? It means in His own way, that is, the way that God has for that child to live. And the psalmist said, like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior are children in the hands of a young parent. And what he means is this, that you parents and and, and you, you fathers, you have your child in your hands like an arrow and it's your privilege to send that child to the goal. It's your privilege to send that child to the mark. Now, what is the goal and what is the mark? It's what God wants for your child's life. You and I have the privilege of sending our children to the the calling of God, to the mark, to the goal that God has for them. Now, be sure and notice that It was Jesus who called them and not Zebedee. I pastored seminary students in Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth that I know were the most miserable people trying to be preachers because, you know, their mothers had called them or their fathers had called them. Be sure and understand it was the Lord who called them, but I I want you to be honest with me. Are you close enough to your children? Are you close enough to the Lord to know what God wants for your children? I can imagine in my imagination that James and John in this three-year period of time would sit down with their father from time to time and they'd say, Dad, do you think we made the right decision? He's such a strange man. There's such strange things happening around us. And there's some feeling in the air that one of these days all of this stuff is going to come to naught, that he's going to die. Do you think we're doing the right thing, Dad? And I think that Zebedee must have looked back at his sons and said, Boys, you're doing the right thing. I was there when he called you. I saw the fire in his eyes. I saw the, the look on his face. Boys, I've seen the change that's, that he's made in you. I see the difference in your life. Yes, keep on following him, boys. You've made the right decision. He's a model father because he sent his sons straight down the road to the will of God. He's a model father because he let his sons go. Now, I know how you interpret this. You read this and you say, James and John got up and followed Jesus. Hooray for James and John. Taking this marvelous risk to follow Christ and all the applause goes to James and John. What a tremendous step of faith. James and John. 
And I know that we cannot argue all together from silence. But I am impressed, ladies and gentlemen, with the fact that this father didn't oppose their decision. And that's a pretty remarkable thing when you understand that the public ministry of Jesus, the public identity of Jesus, was not yet known. All they knew of Jesus was that He was this itinerant preacher who went up and down the country teaching these radical teachings concerning the kingdom. And I'm absolutely convinced that this business was going to be handed down from Zebedee to James and John. You know how it works, don't you? The father teaches his children the business and then he kind of fades, phases out until his sons take over. But in the meantime, the father is teaching the sons and he needs the sons. And I know how it could have been. Watch this. The father could have said and had every right to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Come back here. You guys have made some stupid moves in your life, but this is about the dumbest I've ever seen. You're going to leave me and this business, this established business, and you're going off after this itinerant nobody? He could have said that, but he didn't. You know why? Because he respected the autonomy of his sons. I've always loved the parable of the prodigal son. In evangelical circles, that has been voted the most, par- most popular parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And I remember as a kid, it's a true story, I didn't make this up so it'd fit. I remember as a kid reading that parable and thinking to myself, that's pretty amazing that dad let that boy do that. I knew Buck Tid would never let that happen. He'd never do that. Because the laws of the Jews were clear. A father didn't have to give his inheritance to his sons until he died, until he got ready. And when he had two sons, the older son, just like the parable of the prodigal son, the older son got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son got one-third. And that prodigal's father knew that this was a mistake. This was a terrible decision for this boy to make. I mean, taken off to the far country, he's going to lose everything he's got and might not ever come back home. Wrong decision. He knew it. So what do you do if you're a parent and you confront? And this is the confrontation. On the one hand, the father's providing the needs, making the decisions and the son suddenly decides he wants to make his own decisions and provide for his own needs. Well, you've got two options. The first option is control, and the controlling parent is a parent who makes all the decisions, does all the work, and provides all the needs, and refuses to recognize the developing potential in the person, in the child, for his own self-sufficiency uh, and his own self-discipline. Or the other option is to be flexible. The flexible parent is a parent who is able to let his children go at the right time and know when that right time is. The flexible parent is the parent who understands that parenthood is not a permanent position, as hard as that is to admit. And he knows that from the very beginning of the child's birth, he's there to help that child leave knowing 
that he will not always be there and never, not always be small or dependent. And so he's going to equip him so that he's ready to leave for life. That's a, that's a model parent. It involves responsibility and it involves risk. It involves responsibility in the sense that a parent who does everything for his children will have a child who will be able to do nothing for himself. And it involves risk in the sense that a person risks on the basis of that child's durability and let him suffer the consequences of wrong decisions. Zebedee was a model parent. He let his sons go. One last characteristic that I'm through. He was a father who was willing to, sac- ever, to sacrifice the very best to God. Now, I'm going to have to admit, I'm, I'm drawing from assumption on this last point, using a little ministerial license perhaps, taking this from the book of Assumptions. But if you'll turn sometime to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll find this horrible story. There was Herod who decided he wanted to get a little popularity to strengthen his position among the Jews, so he got a Jew and killed him. And that Jew happened to be James, the son of Zebedee. And I can't find anywhere, so I'm going to assume that when that happened, Zebedee did not get bitter And he didn't get angry toward God and he didn't resent it because Zebedee was the kind of man who helped God to be more valuable and the will of God to be more important than anything else in his life. Here was the memory these boys had of their dad. Listen to this carefully. They knew their dad was the kind of dad who who valued the will of God above everything else. Even the life of his own sons. There's nothing more precious than that. Now if I could reminisce a little bit and share with you one of the memories I have of my father. One of the memories I have of him was his deep conviction about the Lord's Day. And I know that I love the Lord's day and the Lord's house and the Lord's people because I was taught that from my father. And I remember he lost a crop, a wheat crop one time because he wouldn't let the harvest crew pull into our field and cut on Sunday. I'll never forget that. They were kind of, you know, they were just in the country, you know, in the community, and they was cutting one guy's field, and the next in line, they'd go there, and when they'd finish it, the next in line. They finished the neighbor's field on Saturday afternoon, and they got ready to pull into my father's field. And I was with him. I heard this. I heard the conversation. Went something like this. He said, gentlemen, he said, I have a deep conviction about the Lord's day, and I just can't let you cut my crop on the Lord's day. And the guy said something like this. He said, well, we have a deep conviction about making money. (laughs) And they said, we're going to move on. And when we get everybody else, we'll be back. And a storm came before they got back. Wiped everything out. But you know, I, I remember 
being profoundly impressed with the fact that my father not, not one time expressed any dismay or, or resentment or grief over the loss of that thing. And he was teaching me, whether he knew it or not, that there are some things in life he's willing to sacrifice. And there are some things in life that he would never sacrifice. He was teaching me that there were some things worth more than money. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, he tells about the covenanters, the 17th century. The covenanters were men who fought for religious freedom against Charles Stuart, the King of England and Scotland. They took up arms fighting for religious freedom. Richard Cameron was called the Lion of the Covenanters. As a matter of fact, if you read church history books, you'll find this period was known as, and these people were known as the Camerons. Richard Cameron took up arms against Charles Stuart to fight for religious freedom and was defeated at the, uh, at the Battle of Abysmus. And they cut off his hands and they cut off his head. And they took those gruesome parts to Edinburgh where his father, Alan Cameron, was in prison himself. And they wanted to add to his grief. And so they, they came down to Edinburgh with these hands and his head and walked in to Alan Cameron's cell and said, Do you recognize these? And he cried, My son, my blessed son, and wept. And then with weeping and with praise, he said, It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who will cause me or mine no wrong, but has caused goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life. No bitterness, no resentment, no anger, because to Alan Cameron, there were things in life more important there were things precious to him. And the thing most precious was the will of God. On the seal of the Moravian church, there is an ox. On one side of the ox is a plow. On the other side is an altar. Profound symbolism suggesting that every Christian, every father ought to be ready for service and for sacrifice. I ask you fathers, what is the most important thing in life to you? God, grant us that just not fathers, but mothers and children would have the characteristics of teaching what is right, of sacrifice, of setting toward the goal of the prize of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus, those under our care.
Would you pray? God, we thank you that we have the privilege of parenting and that in our care are children as pliable as soft clay, arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Grant us the wisdom to send them straight to the goal. Grant us the sacrifice that would be a model to them that you and your will is more important in life than any other thing. More precious than silver and gold is the will and the plan of God. Help us as parents to be so close to you and to our children that you'll know we'll know what you want and that our prayer shall daily be, Father, what is your will for this child and for this child today? And I pray, Lord, for those of us today who should respond publicly, for the courage and the grace to make such decision that would strengthen the home, the community, and the church. For I pray in Jesus' name, for His sake, sometimes the presence and the Spirit and the, of God is heavy upon the, on a congregation. I sense His presence here this moment in an unusual way. And I know that God is speaking to human heart, to the human heart. And there may be some of you this morning who need to come, just come claiming Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, His will for your life. And there may be some this morning who need to come and join the church as God speaks to your heart about that. And there may be some who need to make public a decision that would change your home, your marriage, your life. And you know what that decision is. And so our prayer simply is that God will have His freedom and way in the moments of invitation while we stand to sing.